0: Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson, and welcome to the Functional Health Podcast. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine. And I will share with you their stories, their expertise, and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Dr. Nijon Eccles. Nijon runs a cancer support clinic and offers breast thermography. This system detects any abnormal heat patterns that can potentially indicate infection, inflammation, or a more sinister emerging problem. And today, we're going to discuss ways to diagnose and potentially avoid breast cancer. So, without further ado, Nijon, welcome
1: to the show. Yeah, happy to be uh, be here and part of this, actually, Ben. Uh, Thanks for the invitation.
0: Now, just to to start off, um, I've spoken to you about this just a little bit before the podcast, but just letting you know that I'm going to challenge you on certain things today um, and maybe play devil's advocate on a few things, because what we're talking about here is the diagnostic techniques of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, But just to give people some background, now you're known as the natural doctor. Does that mean you're against conventional medicine?
1: I'm not against it. Um, I'm although I'm I'm known as the natural doctor, and that's the name of um, of my practice. It's also a limited company in the UK. Um, I, I, I'm trained as a conventional medic, and and before medicine, I did a PhD. So um, uh, I, I very much come from a conventional background. I'm not against it, but I think we've lent too much on. Um, Pharmaceutical medicine, and we've maybe hoped too much in what that could give us. Um, and I think somewhere along the way, we forgot that you know we are, we <laughs> our bodies are a marvel of creation, and that if we look after them in the right way and give them the right materials, then often they will repair themselves. We 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 lost sight of that somewhere in mainstream medicine. Um, and and lost it to the notion that we need a chemical of some kind to try and fix us. So um, uh, I I very much am am of the belief that, um, that there is a better way of addressing disease process than just looking to a chemical fix. So, but I'm not against um, uh, conventional medicine. I think there are times when we need it,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and it can be life-saving in certain circumstances. But I think in terms of treating chronic illness, uh, we've become far too dependent on chemical-based medicine.
0: Yes, that is certainly the opinion of many that I've spoken to previously. Um and you've said the kind of overemphasis on a chemical to treat chronic illness. However, yeah. many people would argue that there's certain chemicals in plants um, yeah. and phytonutrients, for example, that can be used for a drug-like property. Curcumin, yeah. for example, is, uh, is one which is used very often. What yeah. would you, how would you respond to that?
1: Um, in the sense that, uh, you know, the way things come packaged in nature is a little bit of a marvel, really. Um, we seem to tolerate uh, these complexes that are found in plants, these phytochemical complexes, much better than we tolerate isolated chemicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are many reasons for that, and it's probably outside of the scope of this, this podcast. But um, just, the, just the way that these multiple chemicals work, when you talk about curcumin, for example, that's not one single active. It's a complex and the way that they blend with cell activity and modulate activity rather than block or antagonize certain pathways is, 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 is key. A lot of drugs will, will, will act at a particular point in the uh, chemical and the machinery inside a cell and, and either block or enhance that pathway. But then that will create an upset in the others where I think when we talk about these complexes that nature provides us, rarely are they single chemicals somehow they seem to modulate cell activity and those pathways in a much more gentle way. I think that's the difference, and I know that's speaking very broadly, but, but I think therein is the difference. Is we're, in, nature doesn't give us single chemicals usually, whereas pharma is based on single chemical activity.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: No, I think that makes perfect sense. Um, I, I remember, Rob, um, you're familiar with Robert Kirk. He, uh, yeah. he, he, he said this fact and it's really stuck in my head that selenium, for example, the use of selenium yes. it has like a, a very high toxicity rate, as in there's a certain point and the level of toxicity rises exponentially if you mm. go past this kind of threshold mm-hmm. when it's very different from other minerals. Yeah. But in Brazil nuts, for example, which are extremely high in selenium, there hasn't been a recorded case of selenium toxicity through Brazil nut consumption. Mm-hmm. which I find astonishing. And we still don't know why that is, why there's yes. some form of protective mechanism, why yeah. it stops you from getting, becoming toxic.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, when, uh, I know Rob very well. Um, and uh, uh, we, uh, we've we often exchanged uh, information and ideas on a lot of these topics, but it, absolutely right. We don't, a lot of this stuff we don't know. And, uh, but... That's okay, you know, sometimes we don't know why certain things happen and why they have positive effects. It's okay to embrace that lack of knowledge, as long as we know, something is efficacious without doing harm. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely.
0: No, I'm- Regards to cancer, now I've, yeah. I've been um, to many talks around London talking about how to reduce the risk of getting cancer and also to improve the effectiveness of both natural and conventional treatments. And I've previously, sp- previously spoken with Professor Robert Thomas about this topic quite extensively, both on nutrition and how lifestyle can play um, a key role. Yeah. But when it comes to kind of diagnostic techniques, I've kind of fallen short of, there seems to be um, a reduction in kind of people speaking out about this yeah. now many people are familiar with the mammogram and think it's the only way they can get diagnosed for breast cancer for example which is going to be the topic of conversation today um, yes. what are your thoughts on it?
1: Uh, it's recognised as the gold standard for screening for uh, breast cancer um, but uh, as your listeners may or may not be aware, it's run into a lot of trouble in recent years in the sense that uh, doctors are now starting to question uh, its reliability, i.e., does it do more harm than good? Mm-hmm. All of the, speaking to that specifically, all of the recent evidence suggests that mammography is doing more harm than good, and that actually, uh, if this were a drug, um, uh, Professor Peter uh, Gertz from the formerly of Cochrane uh, in Institute uh, uh, fame said in, in one of his papers, if mammography had been a drug, we would have taken it off the market long before now. And that he made that statement on the basis of looking at the risks and benefits and showed from all of the evidence, uh, we know that it does more harm than good. So if you have a screening tool that is doing more no harm and remember as doctors we that is the uh, the pledge that we make um, when we first go into medicine first do no, no harm that's the hippocratic oath mm-hmm. first do no harm if we as doctors know that something we're doing is doing more harm than good then we should be bold enough to speak out about that and say, look, this is just not good enough. We're, we're, we're doing more harm. We should not, we cannot sign up to this. Um, even though that is becoming uh, common knowledge now, we're still doing the same thing, which which I, I think is bordering on criminal to be doing it. We know we're doing more harm than good. We should stand up uh, for what for our principles and, and, and actually turn away from those things that are doing that. So um, all of the current evidence shows that um, uh, uh, mammography uh, for every uh, uh, cancer that's detected, uh, we're over-treating 10 women, i.e. treating them for cancers with uh, chemotherapy, mastectomy, radiotherapy. Cancers that would not have been a threat to their life because they're not progressive cancers. So, for every one life saved by screening mammography, we are over ten women are being overtreated, and two hundred women will receive false positives. So, wow. that is that is that is the information that's come out of all the studies, and therefore, on that basis, if we're doing that much more harm than good, we should be abandoning this. Um, it's not an effective screening tool. It doesn't mean it doesn't have a role to play in as an investigative tool. And, and what I mean by that, uh, Ben, is that, is that if you have a lesion in the breast, a lump, uh, a change in the nipple, mm-hmm. uh, then a mammogram could be useful to determine the nature of that structural change that has happened. That is not screening. That's investigation. Screening is when you call women who have no problem to come and have a mammogram. So in other words, largely normal population. That's what we mean by screening. That's where it has not proven to be effective that on that basis we shouldn't be screening with it.
0: Right, I understand. So are you saying for people that maybe can't feel anything within the breast tissue themselves, um, they shouldn't be going for screening, it should only be for investig- investigative purposes?
1: Yeah, it's not me saying it, Ben. It's That's what the data shows, is that, is that women who are, who are screened with mammography, there is no evidence that it is that the benefits outweigh the harms. In fact, quite the opposite, that the harms outweigh the benefits. Uh, and this was published, uh, very well summarized in a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2014, which which uh, stemmed from a a whole year of review of all the evidence on mammography by uh, a Swiss team of investigators. Um, And they published their findings in New England Journal in 2014. And and that was one of the conclusions based on all of the evidence taken together up to that date. There was no clear evidence that that mammographic screening uh, was a benefit uh, compared to the harms. So... In fact, one of the conclusions from a big study in the British Medical Journal uh, published in 2014, and this was based on screening 90,000 women over 25 years with mammography. It's one of the longest studies of mammography to date. Mm-hmm. So 90,000 women over 25 years. Here was their conclusion. Mammograms have absolutely no impact on breast cancer mortality. Right. And that, that um, is a quote from the paper, British Medical Journal 2014, uh, um, and also they're not the only ones to say that. Um, a Cochrane review in 2013 said more or less the same. They they, they looked at the evidence uh, of mammographic screening um, and the effect it has on overall mortality, and they said when you take all this evidence together, it seriously calls into question whether mammography screening really benefits women. So. Um, So these concerns have been raised, but they've not been acted on, except for in Switzerland, where um, I believe they're the first country to phase out screening mammography. Um, see,
0: that is absolutely fascinating, because like you said, this huge study has been published in a very highly prestigious medical journal. Why hasn't there been more implementation or more use of this data in the NHS, in other healthcare services? Why is it only Switzerland that have picked it up? That's what most people, I imagine, will be asking?
1: Uh, The only answer I have to that, Ben, is that I think uh, my experience of modern medicine is it's not quick to act. Mm -hmm. And a lot of medicine, we call it modern medicine, but a lot of it is built around tradition. And unfortunately, um, uh, it, it it is a movement, or if I can call it that, or... It is a body that doesn't change very rapidly, doesn't embrace new ideas very quickly. Um, and uh, and I think one of the other reasons why, apart from that, why it hasn't changed is because there is lack of knowledge of what would be a suitable alternative to replace it with.
0: Yes, and I do want to touch upon that in just a second but just to, to finish off with um, mammograms, a lot of people are concerned like you mentioned um, people, women are being overtreated, but a lot of people are concerned about the mammogram itself, um, yeah. exposing women to radiation and then maybe uh, propagating a cancer which may not have developed otherwise
1: yeah that's right well that, that is one of the concerns as well is that they um, is that the, the compression at the time of uh, of the mammogram, what if you had a small tumor that you couldn 't feel and you were applying um, that that heavy pressure uh, to the breast? Uh, there are some concerns about the impact of that pressure. Um, uh, we know that it takes twenty two pounds of pressure to rupture the capsule of a tumor. Well, the average pressure at a, at a mammogram can be much higher than that you know forty two pounds of pressure. So there, there are real concerns. I mean, Katrina Packman, who's a, uh, a scientist based in Germany, has done uh, studies looking at circulating epithelial cells before and after women have mammography. And she's demonstrated clearly that you get an increase in circulating epithelial cells after a mammogram. That's worrying because it means you're releasing cells from the compression.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so Certainly, there's no definitive on this, but there's a lot of debate and there's a lot of circumstantial and also published evidence to suggest that the compression at a mammogram may actually serve to, to push out cells from the breast into the circulation. That's a concern, and it's being debated. Now, there is one other point I'd like to add, actually, Ben, before we move on yeah, please, uh, with, with mammography, just to really tie this up. Uh, and a lot of people don't, don't realize this. We, we talk about mammography as an early detection tool. But actually, if you look at the, uh, the, the studies on um, wide, what we call wide excision biopsy. So what this is, is where a tumor or what we thought was a single tumor on a mammogram is excised. And we take a, a, with it the, the four centimeters of, of, of tissue around it. We found that this was published in 2007 in a study. Um, Two-thirds of what we thought was a single tumor turns out to be multifocal. So in other words, just to explain that, we'll put it differently. We see what we think is a single lesion on a mammogram. Mm -hmm. That lesion and surrounding four-centimeter tissue is excised surgically. And in two-thirds of cases, we find that those that cancer is multifocal meaning that there are deposits of cancer around uh, what we thought was a single tumor so that if that's what we're getting from screening mammography from then that's not early detection if it's already spreading into the surrounding area arguably that's too late detection so um uh, so it's failing there as well because we're looking for something big enough to block enough x-rays to see and that means we're looking generally at, a, at something a small grape size, um, by that time, often that will be 500 million cancer cells. And that's been developing there for 6 to 10 years. So that's not early detection. And given what I've just said, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that's too late in the day. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, and, and the papers that we've just discussed, I'll make sure they're put in the show notes so the listeners can access them.
1: Sure, okay.
0: Thermography, and this is some, one of the reasons why, how I came across you actually, was looking into this um, topic myself, um, and I came across thermography, and I still, um, I, well, I didn't know what it was at the time, and it was something which really fascinated me. So for people that haven't heard about this technique before, this diagnostic technique, could you p- please explain how it works?
1: Yes, thermography is based on uh, detecting heat coming from the breast tissue by using uh, uh, infrared cameras. So what these cameras do is they're able to detect very small heat changes um, as low as uh, 0.05 degrees Celsius. So very, very small temperature changes. And we know that, that uh, when cancers are developing, they're associated with heat generation. Mm-hmm. And they generate heat for two reasons. One is because they're highly metabolic. So that generates more heat than normal cells do. And the second reason is because they uh, encourage the formation of new blood vessels, a process called angiogenesis. Angiogenesis, And that new circulation creates more heat in that area. So uh, this happens quite early on in the development of a cancer. So these heat changes can be detected far sooner than the structural changes that we're seeing in a mammogram. So the essence of thermography is that we're looking for these early signs of a cancer developing because of these heat changes, which predate the structural changes. So it gives us a much earlier detection possibility
0: fantastic so when you say it gives you you an early detection possibility how early are we talking um, in comparison to something that a mammogram would do
1: well based on all of the science that's been published around tomography we think that is somewhere between six and ten years earlier
0: and this kind of technique isn't exposing you to kind of the pressure that you'd be put under with a mammogram or the kind of radiation that you may be exposed to either is that correct
1: Correct. There's no radiation at all because you're not putting anything in. You're detecting heat by these cameras coming from the surface of the, of the breast. So there's nothing goes in. There's no radiation. Uh, and there's no compression. We don't need to compress the breasts. It's like um, a woman having her photo taken except we are taking a picture of the breasts with a thermal camera. So it's completely non-invasive.
0: Right, fantastic. And in terms of... Um... I suppose the sensitivity of these because we we spoke about it before like um, some of the um, sorry the mammogram you're saying sometimes doesn't pick up the cancer until it's too late is there um, a chance of picking up the cancer almost too early because I know that we develop kind of what we call precancerous cells in our body all the time but the the immune system is able to deal with them is there Mm -hmm. a danger of picking up these kind of cells too early and then maybe treating them um, when treatment isn't needed
1: well, that's exactly what we think is happening. Um, the consensus of opinion now with mammography is that, as I said before, is that we're over-treating mm-hmm. based on what we're detecting with mammograms. And a large proportion of those cancers that we are detecting are cancers that would not have been a threat to the woman's life. So they're not aggressive cancers. So I- indeed, we are over-treating uh, and we're overdiagnosing, and we're being too heavy-handed in terms of the therapy that, uh, that we're offering. That's one of the things that is happening because of screening mammography.
0: Mm-hmm. But th- thermography somehow bypasses this. Um, how, how is that the case?
1: Well, we're looking for the earliest signs of a, of a breast in trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you see temperature changes in a breast on thermography, it doesn't equal cancer. It's important to say that. There are other things that can... Uh, increased temperature in the breast. For example, inflammation will do it, uh, an infection will do it. Um, uh, we could be looking at precancerous changes. Uh, they may create temperature changes in the breast. So, we don't, an abnormal thermogram doesn't mean it's cancer. But if you have a stressed breast, and this is what the studies show with thermography, if you have a, an abnormal thermogram, uh, and this, in fact, has been studied over a period of time, if you take these women who have abnormal thermograms and you follow them and repeat the thermograms over five years, mm-hmm. 40% of those women who have abnormal thermograms will have developed a breast cancer in that time. So what that means is that, is that women who have an abnormal thermogram represent a group of women who are at in, increased risk with time, It doesn't mean they have a cancer there and then,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but, that, but if you have temperature change in your breast and you leave it without doing anything, then that represents a, a, an increased risk with time. And in my book, approaching this from a functional medicine perspective, uh, I don't like to leave women at risk. I, uh, one of the things we'll talk about maybe a bit later is, is what I do uh, and how we can correct abnormal physiology in the breast which may not actually be uh, a cancer at that point. And if you like, we're, we're, we're tackling this abnormal physiology, so it does not become a more aggressive and more sinister situation over time.
0: Yes, I would love to talk, up, uh, talk about that a little bit later. Um, f- but just to, to finish this part off, um, yes. can this thermography, because from what I understand, it's only used for breast cancers right now. Can it be used for other cancers too?
1: Uh, I wish I had a pound for every time someone asked me yeah. that question. It <laughs> <laughs> has to be asked yeah. though. Yes, no, it's a, it's a very important question. Um, the answer is uh, right now, as far as I'm aware, um, there isn't the science with thermography with other cancers. There's, there's lots of published articles on thermography and its use in breast cancer detection but we just don't have the science to support its use for other cancers just now. So um, the answer at this point, until we have the research, we cannot advocate uh, the use of thermography for detection of other cancers. When we have the data, yes, but um, not until then.
0: And is that data coming through, and even for breast cancer still?
1: It is for breast cancer. There's still papers being done, more research is being done, because like all things, those of us who are doing thermography... Uh, uh, we, we like to improve on what we're doing, particularly if, if those thermographers are doctors like me who have a science background. We're always looking to see how we can make this better. Um, cameras have become more sophisticated. We have digital infrared now. The cameras are very tiny, but it's highly sensitive. Mm-hmm. On top of that, um, there's the protocols that you use. How do you prepare the woman before she has her thermogram? And when you're doing the thermogram, what is the correct way of doing it? What is the right temperature of the room? All of these things impact on the sensitivity of the test and make it more sensitive. Um, There's the issue of dynamic thermography, which is where you impose a cold challenge to the woman's breast tissue. Because you're not just looking for heat changes. You're looking for how does the breast tissue respond to cooling? Is there a normal cooling that happens. That also gives you information and increases the sensitivity accuracy of the test. So, um, what i kind of alluded to there was that if you're going to do thermography, it should be done properly. The person, mm-hmm. the, the patient should be prepped properly. It should be done in the right temperature controlled room. Um, and, and, and then on top of that, the way the image is analyzed, uh, adds to the sensitivity as well. And so, um, uh, that's a long way of me saying that over time, the way thermography has evolved, certainly over the last 10 years, is that we've learned how to make it much more accurate by, by adhering to specific protocols and using computers to analyze the images rather than just the human eye.
0: That makes perfect sense. And just to give a, a hypothetical situation, for example, because I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah. Let's say a, a woman comes to you um, or a man, for example, the cancer or there's a, a disturbance in the breast tissue picked up by this thermography. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not picked up through conventional diagnostic techniques. Mm-hmm. And what you have is a situation where conventionally people would say you do not have cancer and yeah. even through the thermogram, it might be the case that it maybe looks precancerous, but you're not sure. Yes. How would you treat something like this?
1: Yes. What do now, people do? That is the million-dollar question you just asked <laughs> right there, is because um, uh, one, of the, one of the criticisms that's lodged against people and doctors who offer thermography is that you're, uh, you're scaring women unnecessarily. In other words... Uh, you know, they have an abnormal thermogram, but they have a normal mammogram or a normal ultrasound, normal MRI. Aren't you just scaring these women? Because we've established that there isn't a structural problem. Well, you can see, given what we said already, that argument is uh, is on shaky ground, mm-hmm. because, because the resolution of detection with structural scanning is one centimeter. If you have something smaller, you, you may not be you won't pick it up on a structural scan. You may occasionally pick up, up half a half of centimeter uh, a tumor on, a, on a, a structural scan, but it's not consistent. So what if you have a small lesion that's just too small to see on those, and you're picking it up as, a, as, a, as a, an abnormal thermogram? So um, I'll tell you what I do, um, because you know other functional doctors may do things differently, but Um, I've been looking at this for 10 years or so now, Um, and and that is looking at some key nutrients in women who have abnormal thermograms, looking at their levels. And uh, what I did was I studied um, three key things, actually. Uh, Vitamin D levels,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, iodine levels, and also estrogen metabolism. So the way that a uh, woman metabolizes her estrogens, because uh, the, the, the summary of that last one is that a woman can produce toxic estrogens and non-toxic and the balance of those may influence her risk of damaging her breast tissue. So it's, it's a useful measure. And what I found, to cut a long story short, Ben, was that if I measured these parameters in women Almost invariably, women who had abnormal thermograms had at least two of those abnormal, meaning they had either low vitamin D, low iodine, mm-hmm. and they weren't metabolizing their estrogens particularly well. And, and, and therefore, that, that triggered me to, uh, to correct those things. So if they had a, a vitamin D uh, insufficiency or deficiency, we would correct it. If they had an iodine deficiency, and half of Europeans do now, because we don't routinely iodise salt, and we don't feed um, we don't feed um, uh, fish meal to cattle anymore, so it's no longer in milk. We use bromide in baking instead of iodine, mm-hmm. so and that's a, an iodine antagonist. So and we use fluor there's fluoride in the environment, which is an iodine antagonist. So Absolutely. there are many reasons for us being iodine deplete but the, but. But breasts love iodine, and they also like to see good, good levels of vitamin D. Um, and they also don't like to see toxic estrogens. So what I did over – and this is answering your question – we now have a case study series of about 140 women who have had abnormal thermograms. And we have corrected, not necessarily always measuring – that we've focused on correcting these common imbalances these nutritional imbalances that we see in these women with abnormal thermograms and then we rescan them 6 months later i haven't published this yet but i'm telling you now between 85 and 90% of those women who we intervene in this nutritional uh, nutraceutical way will either have a normal thermogram again at 6 months or be normalizing So between 85 and 90% will have normal or normalizing thermograms six months later. So what that means in my book is that we're taking women who are at increased risk
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and we're doing something to change the uh, nutritional environment in the breast in a way that favors lowering their risk of a cancer development. We know vitamin D can reduce risk. We know iodine can reduce risk. And we know that if you detoxify estrogens, that can reduce risk. Now, when you address all of those things, in my study, in my clinical experience, that significantly can impact on breast physiology over a period of six months.
0: Okay, that's huge. And, but I'm just going to play devil's advocate for one second. Yeah. Because yeah. you've touched upon three things, vitamin D, iodine, and estrogen metabolism. Now, considering most of the population are vitamin D deficient and iodine due to the kind of environmental antagonists that we have, the bromide, the fluoride, et cetera, yeah. and the estrogen metabolism, we are completely flooded with phthalates, xenoestrogens everywhere. Yeah. Surely most of the population would have two or more. Of the, these things out of balance, and therefore you might, would yeah. benefit.
1: Yes, you might be right. I mean, I mean, you might be right. I, I, I don't know that because mm-hmm. I haven't tested them. Uh, I've just specifically tested the women who are, have abnormal thermograms. But you might be right. I mean, I mean, uh, vitamin D uh, deficiency insufficiency is extremely common, as you rightly pointed out. In my in patients who come to see me in my practice. Uh, not just for, for breast health, but for, uh, you know, hormones, uh, bioidentical hormones, et yeah. cetera, uh, they all get their vitamin D tested. And, and, and I would say deficiency or insufficiency is running at about 70%. These are people who can afford private medicine and can afford holidays in the sun, and 70% of them are too low on their vitamin D. So I suspect in the general population it's even higher than that. You're right, it's common. Um, Iodine deficiency, we know, is common. Um, Oestrogen metabolism and it it being more tipped towards toxic uh, estrogens. don't know what the numbers are on that, but it it may well be more prevalent than we think. So the answer is yes, most people would have those. Most people, uh, even if they didn't have a thermogram, women who are worried about their breast health, if they were proactive around those three things, uh, my belief is that they would be significantly reducing their risk if they attended to those three things.
2: Yeah.
0: And I am challenging you, Nijan, on these things, but if you're seeing clinical effectiveness of implementing, you know, vitamin D therapy, correctinion D and also improving estrogen metabolism, then, you know, regardless of whether the rest of the population has it, that is a huge outcome, reducing the risk of people pot- potentially having breast cancer. And time
1: will tell, you know, because, um, you know, when we've got 10 years of data, which we mm-hmm. don't have yet, and we look at, uh, at the women who've been to see us for that number of time, we'll be able to say, OK, how many women coming to see us who we've intervened with, how many of them have developed breast cancer? We'll be able to compare that against what you would expect to see in the general population and there we'll have our answer you know i mean if it, it my prediction will be it will be significantly lower than would be expected over a 10-year period if you did nothing
2: mm-hmm.
0: now in terms of the kind of wider picture that like you talked about those three elements and um, but many people talk about nutrition i'm, I'm obviously going to talk about nutrition because that's my background um, sure. in terms of implementing and looking at the cruciferous vegetable consumption and also consumption yes. of in mushrooms but not because of the immunomodulatory properties but also for the the fact that it blocks aromatase mm-hmm. for yes. for estrogen metabolism etc and yes. um, yes. do you implement anything like that in your practice when working with these kind of women in cases
1: Yeah, I mean, well, let's take the crucifers to start with that you mentioned there. Mm -hmm. They play an integral role in modifying oestrogen metabolism, um, particularly of phase one of oestrogen metabolism. So, uh, in fact, when we test that, if we test it, if that's out, that's exactly what we do is we will use cruciferous extracts, either indole-3, carbonyl or DIM,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. usually, uh, to correct that abnormality in, in estrogen metabolism, phase one. You can also help with methylation in phase two, uh, and that usually just means taking a complex of different uh, B vitamins, specific ones. So it's, it's, so you can non-invasively change um, a woman's estrogen metabolism by using these key nutrients, which include the, the crucifers. Uh, with the aromatase, um, there are different ways of tackling that. Um, the, the other way I would look at that in a woman who is worried about her breasts, I would look at, um, uh, at what her balance of hormones is, for example. If she's estrogen dominant, which is not uncommon, uh, or and or progesterone deficient, um, then... Um, Uh, When you correct that imbalance, it will make things more favorable in terms of uh, that estrogen dominance and also progesterone in itself has uh, effects aromatase. So um, uh, that's one of the other ways I would look at at that Mm -hmm. uh, in one other over and above the the nutritional elements. But there are other things, you know, Um, the protocol I use is based around the three things that I mentioned um, there, there are other things you could add and look at which might, you know, add even more to uh, the efficiency of what we're doing. Um, I believe this more, the more people who are involved in doing thermography and in correcting abnormal scans, the more we'll find, the more molecules we'll find that do, you know, that add to this, mm-hmm. that add to the efficacy of what we're trying to do. Uh, you've mentioned a couple there, and I'm sure there are a lot more.
0: Yes, absolutely. And one thing which you, you touched upon before, which I just want to refer back to, is the idea of stress. So oh, for yeah. someone who has an abnormality um, and it's picked up by the th- thermogram, am I, am I saying that right, thermogram?
1: Thermogram, yeah. Yes, yeah.
0: okay. So it's picked up by the thermogram. They're very stressed about it, but they only have a 30% risk of developing breast cancer now i imagine some doctors would say that stress is potentially more harmful than the risk of developing the cancer now how do you ameliorate the kind of stress that people have and also um i guess respond to the doctors who challenge you on that
1: okay so this so in my big experience, question well,
0: i know <laughs> well
1: so in my experience this and this is how i normally answer it um uh, that stress is only a figment of these doctors' imagination. Because uh, in my experience, when a woman presents and finds out she has an abnormal thermogram, uh, rarely does that lead her to having more stress. It's interesting, this one. Mm -hmm. The, The attitude I've encountered is usually, well, one of, Well, I'm glad I came, and um, the reason I came was to check my breast health, uh, and I see that there's a problem there. It's a wake-up call for me to do something about it. That is the usual response I get, not panic, um, because a lot of women uh, seem to be accepting that they need to make changes, whether that is lifestyle changes or nutritional changes. They're happy to do that, and they usually do it without getting too stressed about it either. Um, it's interesting because you would expect the opposite, but that's not what I see. Right, Fascinating.
0: So we've talked a bit about the thermogram and how it relates to women's breast cancer, but can men also use the thermogram to detect breast cancer too?
1: Uh, they can. Yes, they can. We've had a few men come in. It's, it's very, uh, very few and far between. Uh, and, and, you know, 1% of, of men compared to women uh, get breast cancer, but they do. And we've had a couple of men who have had breast cancer. Uh, you can use thermography in exactly the same way to screen them. Um, the only thing you have to do there uh, if you're screening men is if they if they have hair on their chest, you have to get them to shave it prior to um them having the scan mm-hmm. but it can be used because you're comparing one side to the other that's how thermography works so you're comparing all the regions of the breast tissue one side compared we do it exactly the same way this, we take the pictures the same way it can be used to screen men in very much in the same way um that we use it in women
0: um just because i know we touched upon those three elements before the iodine vitamin d and estrogen metabolism would those be the three factors that you would look at in a man as well
1: definitely all of those things um as with women the the risk of uh, of, of breast cancer in men increases with age
2: mm-hmm. um
1: and unfortunately as men age they tend to produce more estrogen the testosterone uh is uh, gets more converted uh to estrogen um, and, and that is more common as as men age, and therefore oestrogen becomes more of a problem uh, for men with ageing. So definitely looking at oestrogen metabolism, iodine, vitamin D, is still very relevant to men as well.
0: Is that an aromatase issue? Because I I don't know why this is the case, why it increases as men age.
1: Uh, it is an aromatase issue. And in fact, one of the things that you have to do because aromatase becomes more active as men age. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so you've got to address that. Um, And lowering aromatase activity is a good thing to do because you stop the excess estrogen being being formed.
0: Right, perfect. Thank you so much for, for clearing that up. And Nigel, I know we're coming up on time, but I've got three final questions for you, which I ask everyone that comes on the show. Um, the first one being, what is the biggest health change that you have made in your life and why?
1: Eee, that's a tough one to answer. <laughs> that really is. A, it, uh, that's putting me on the spot a bit. There's, there's quite a few things, but if I had to yeah. pick one... Doesn't, it uh, doesn't have
0: to be nutrition-related. That's the, that's the key there. It could be anything.
1: Oh, it could be anything. Ask me the question again. So what is the
0: biggest health change that you have made in your life, and why? Mm.
2: <laughs>
1: well, well, uh, okay, so I, well, it is nutritional, sorry to say, um, and, and, and this, this is a completely different topic, but I would say um, one of the most important changes for me has been the discovery of um, how to improve mitochondrial health right? And, yes, and how I can do that with specific highly advanced supplementation. So without giving any detail, I would say that is, that is maybe one of the most significant things uh, that I've come across and implemented in my own health.
0: I didn't know you were going to say that, but I've seen a video that was actually on your website where you touch upon this supplement. I think you're referring to.
1: Ah, yes, yes, there is. There is a, a video on on my website which talk doesn't talk about it in detail, but no. talks about the principle of it. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. and we'll link to that um, for the listeners to, to access. Um, and yeah. the, the second one is how can healthcare become more integrated and this is a big question again, how can healthcare become more integrated with the kind of approaches that you implement in your practice and what we've spoken about today?
1: Uh, It's, uh, you know, that's, again, a really good question. There's no easy answer. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it boils down to education. Um, uh, If we just use thermography as an example, uh, I'm now at the point where uh, having developed the system that we use, which is called Thermacheck, um, that's come out of using this uh, various systems for 15 years, and bringing the best of those into one system with defined protocols and computer analysis of the images. We've developed I've, I've developed that system now to the point where we're ready to for other doctors to take that on, implement it in their practice, um, at a very reasonable uh, cost to them. So um, the reason I'm saying this is that um, uh, there are a lot of doctors who are interested in this. For me, it's a process of education because a lot of those didn't even know about this, didn't know about thermography, uh, didn't know the difference between thermography and mammography. And so there there is a challenge to really get this information out. To uh, to talk to doctors, particularly functional medicine doctors, who get it straight away. By the way, mm-hmm. uh, they they because they, they understand that we're tr- picking up changes upstream and therefore correcting things before they manifest as clinical problems. So that's that's where we're at with thermography. They get it straight away. There are many of those who are keen to have these systems and to put put them into their clinic, but. To answer your question specifically, I think it comes down to, in my experience, education. We've got to get out there. With those of us who are who are doing integrated medicine have, uh, have got to be involved in educating our colleagues on why these things have merit and why they should be embraced more in mainstream.
0: I couldn't agree more with you there. That makes perfect sense. And the, the last question, last but not least, can you please provide the listeners with three tips to help improve their health and well-being from today?
1: All right. Well, let's, let's just keep that specific to breast health, shall okay. we? Yep, because absolutely. I think given we've spent all the time talking about that, so <laughs> I, I'm just going gonna, gonna to take the easy route out on this one and just, and just repeat some of the things that we, we said. And, and maybe just for emphasis, it's important. Anyway, I would say this is for everybody, not just for breast health. You know, um, I would say get your vitamin D levels optimal. And usually if you don't live in a sunny climate, that means you should supplement vitamin D. Mm-hmm. And all the vitamin D experts are now saying we should take between four and 5,000 international units of vitamin D3, which is the active form, with vitamin K2. That's important. Yeah. yeah. So, good doses of vitamin D. In my experience, you need 4,000 units to get a, a person's D level above 100 nanomoles per liter, uh, and that's an optimal level. 50 to 200 is normal. So, four to five thousand units with K2. Second, uh, and this is men and women, uh, correct your iodine deficiency because you're likely to have it. The the Japanese routinely take in between 12 and 13 milligrams. Uh, of iodine daily in their oh, diet, okay. and it doesn't seem to do them any harm. People are worried about, you know, putting their thyroids out. There's no evidence that it does that. Um, and we are a long, long way from that level of intake in the West. Mm-hmm. So so my second uh, tip would be take 12 milligrams of iodine, usually in, in a form of Lugol's is, is the cheapest and most effective, in my opinion. So a 12% Lugol's iodine, one drop of that a day will give you 12 milligrams of, of iodine, men and women, because there's some evidence that it's, it's protective against prostate. And iodine does a lot of other things as well. It's a detoxifier. Uh, it helps neutralize estrogens, which is relevant in men as well as, as, as women, particularly as men get older. So there's no downside there. Uh, and the third thing I would have to say Coming off one of your leads would be to, to tell women, particularly, to increase their amount of cruciferous vegetables that they take in in the diet. That's very much uh, um, along the lines of helping them detoxify estrogens and therefore protecting their estrogen-sensitive tissues, so breasts and, and uterus. Um, and I think I, I often refer to those, those, those crucifers as uh, women's breast friends. Pointing, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know. Yeah, but, but
0: I but, like it nonetheless.
1: But um, I would say that would be the third. If we, and that's specific to breast health. So vitamin D, iodine, cruciferous vegetables. Um, and on, on the last one, just to tag on, I would say we kind of know now that that plant-based diets are more protective against cancers generally. So erring more on the side of having more plant foods, not necessarily being vegetarian, but changing the balance to more plant, uh, uh, plant foods in the diet is not a bad thing to do if you want to reduce your risk of cancers.
0: Nijon, nice, um, I'm just about to bring the podcast to a close. I just want to say it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. I've certainly learned a lot and thank you so much for, for you know, dealing with all my challenging uh, kind of questions.
1: That's all right, Then I'm, I'm happy that we've we've, uh, we've been able to have this chat finally okay. and it's been a pleasure to be involved with it.
0: Brilliant. And just before you go, could you please tell the listeners where they can find you and what exciting projects you have coming up?
1: Uh, okay, so the easiest way to find me is probably through our website, which is um, org. So, org. that's the best way. Um, uh, probably too many projects to mention, <laughs> uh, uh, but just a few quickly. Um, uh lots of uh, interesting work with bioidentical hormones would be one, uh, and their the relevance to better aging. That's all part of the same thing. Um, I've developed um, a, a formula, a hair restoration formula. That's a project which is uh, ongoing. Um, and there's an international patent which is looming. Uh, for that, we're getting amazing results with this formula called biogrow hair that I, I developed. That's a big project. Um, and also we're we're looking now at uh, the the mitochondrial health a lot more because mm-hmm. this is something that a lot of doctors are starting to get interested in. And, and a colleague of mine who actually developed this formula, he and I are looking to um, to do educational programs for health practitioners and doctors over the next 12 months, particularly so, to, to get very much behind promoting that, because we feel if doctors learn that, they can impact far greater on their, their patients' well-being than they may be currently doing. So uh, all big stuff, uh, and hopefully all kicking in after um, uh, we sort out the, the current uh, COVID problem that's going on
0: yes absolutely fingers crossed that gets fixed soon but for the listeners i'll just say i'll link to absolutely everything that we spoke about today including the thermo check in the show notes Nijon, again it's been a huge huge pleasure to speak to you and i very much hope that we can do this again soon
1: all right then thanks again
0: Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook or our website and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for the editing and Alan Harper for his support.